Tune in weekly and listen to the Collateral Damage Podcast, where Michael Wilson and Maureen Kavanaugh host a variety of special guests to discuss topics and available services that will help you learn about the impact that substance use has on our lives, our families, and on our communities nationwide. Episodes and listening information can be found at www.cdpodcast.com. You can also search for Collateral Damage Podcast on your favorite listening platforms or watch previous and future episodes on YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe and share. We'd like to thank Sunrise Detox for sponsoring this episode of Collateral Damage. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Collateral Damage. My name is Mike Wilson. And I am Maureen Kavanaugh. My amazing co-host. And uh, today we have a special guest, Dr. Mark Tyndall, um, who is the professor of medicine at the University of British Columbia and also the founder of My Safe Project, uh, which, uh, Dr. Tyndall, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that is a vending machine that you uh, created to uh, dispense hydromorphone pills. Is that right? Yeah, that's what I've been working on the last few months. Okay. And this is, uh, where is this taking place now? Uh, so in Vancouver. So um, many people have heard of the infamous downtown east side. So uh, for decades, Vancouver's had a, a quite an active drug scene, really compressed into sort of a, a ghetto of people living in mm. poverty and, uh, and using a lot of drugs. Okay. And what was it that uh, uh, inspired you to go down this road? I mean, you... Uh, you obviously saw a need, right? You saw a need that, that needed to be filled, that people did not have access or that you wanted to uh, find a way to give people access to this. What was it that inspired that? Well, I've worked in the community for over 20 years. So I was my background is an infectious disease doctor, and I started out uh, treating people for HIV and then uh, got involved in HIV prevention um, area, including a lot of harm reduction. So I was involved in early needle exchanges and uh, supervised injection sites. And uh, the, the overdose crisis really hit uh, Vancouver hard um, in about 2016. So uh, I've been focusing on that over the last few years, obviously bringing in um, the work I've done around harm reduction. And we've tried to ramp up or scale up the work that we were doing. But uh, clearly, um, when the uh, street drug market was poisoned by fentanyl, it wasn't enough. So I've been working on the idea that people deserve access to a safer, safer supply of opioids. Mm -hmm. So this is this is definitely to try to curb the overdose crisis. I mean, along with things like, you know, the insight safe injection sites, these are uh, uh, all part of a bigger picture harm reduction model to basically keep people alive, right? I mean, you can't help them if they're not alive. So uh, yeah. the very least keeping people, uh, giving them this this safe access to a substance that's not tainted. Uh, yeah, and it, you know, it doesn't take long to, you know, I spend a lot of my time um, around supervised injection sites and uh, other harm reduction programs. And it doesn't take long to realize that uh, they're very limited. I mean, you know, to just, over and over just watch people overdose and give them the lock zone and then walk back out the door and buy more is uh you know it becomes a bit of a, a vicious circle and uh and a lot of people don't come back again so i mean it's just uh it, to me it's just a uh ethical and practical way to deal with uh, 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 a street drug supply that is now very dangerous for people 
Mm. You know what, if we could just back up a little bit, because we're now in the United States starting to, I think we're starting to get to the point where we're going to be accepting the safe injection sites. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious what you saw in the beginning when that was first, first introduced in, uh, in Vancouver, in British Columbia, and, and what kind of an impact that had? Mm. Well, that's a great question. When I, um, you know, I follow what's happening in the U.S., especially the focus is now around Philadelphia trying mm-hmm. to open up their place. And uh, it's just the same thing over and over. It's deja vu from probably, you know, 15 years ago in Vancouver when really it started as a grassroots uh, effort and the uh, really the community started it. There was a couple of uh, you know, unsanctioned supervised injection sites that were going on. I, as a physician down there, I dropped by um, some evenings and provided some, you know, very um, superficial medical care and uh, just basically directed some people they should go to the hospital sort of thing and uh, looked after some wounds and things. So these were going on um, much before Insight happened, which was the sanctioned supervised injection site. And that finally opened in 2003. So that's 17 years ago, basically. Wow. And, uh, and so the same community, you know, um, concerns were voiced at that time. Um, this, you know, this would just be a disaster or just uh, drive all these people into the community to use these services. And uh, what are we doing, uh, allowing people to use drugs anyways, and they should all be in treatment and care. And, uh, you know, the, all these same, uh, same arguments were there 17 years ago. Um, mm. But we, you know, I was involved in the evaluation of this. We did some, you know, fairly rigorous scientific evaluations and all the fears that people had uh, never never materialized and uh you know at that point in time too it just seemed to be a practical thing if you you know take somebody who's injecting in the rain and running away from police is is a pretty bad situation for everybody and uh allowing people to come inside where you could actually talk to them and uh they could get a clean needle um Mm -hmm. this made all the sense in the world and uh and it it, it, but the the history of uh, supervised injection sites in, in british columbia are are quite sad also. So Insight was the only place, you know, within six months, it was already at capacity and we needed, we needed more. And that didn't happen until uh, 2016 when the government allowed them to open and um, based on the overdose crisis. And now in the province of British Columbia, there's about uh, uh, 30 of these uh, Mm -hmm. functioning uh, in different communities. You know, it's interesting. You talk, you, you, you said about the, the fears that never really manifested themselves, like these, these things everybody was so afraid of. And, you know, here we have a lot of sober living um, down here and there's a uh, column NIMBYs, not in my backyard. Uh, yeah. You know, people who they gather and I, I assume that you probably had similar, uh, similar folks when the injection sites were being uh, discussed and planned was that they all have all of these fears that you're going to bring these people to our community, that you're going to create these problems that don't currently exist and they do exist you just don't see them Mm -hmm. because we don't have a safe place for them to do them or they're not you know they're not getting help it's just not it's happening in the shadows and uh, I I remember working uh, with a a local official who was you know just fairly ignorant to the whole process and we were explaining our plans for sober living and he said well what happens if they go AWOL and I was like what I don't know what that means what do you mean he's like well what happens if they escape and they're wandering the streets and I was like (laughs) What happens if a voluntary participant decides to leave? Yeah, uh, the yeah. same thing that would happen if we weren't there, you know? <laughs> I was like, but because we're there, they have an opportunity to get well, and, you know, you'd be supporting that. And it was just always, to me, it was baffling 
that some of those fears, I, I understand them, but they're so unfounded. You know, it's just, and I assume that's probably what you've run into with the injection sites and we're running into it now. And yeah, and we have, you know, strong scientific data. There's been probably 50 peer-reviewed papers around Insight. We followed a, a large cohort of over 800 people who are using the site and documented all kinds of positive outcomes from uh, the use of Insight. Yeah. And still, I could find myself at a community forum, um, you know, as an expert in this and having the science behind me. And some guy who found a needle in his backyard is debating me about supervised injection sites and arm reduction, and the crowd would be split in half. You know, really? some, wow. you know it's it's, uh, it's really based on ideology. Like that, you know, sure. basically, you know, the narrative is that people shouldn't use drugs, and that anything you do to try to uh, um, connect with people who use drugs is uh, shouldn't even be we shouldn't even bother. They should just stop using drugs. And so, mm. you know, and I've argued that you know the the idea that uh, um, we um, take somebody who's, you know, entrenched in, in, in their drug use and expect the first thing they should do is abstinence. It makes absolutely no sense. And then we're, they're wondering why that's not working for them. I mean, the obvious thing is to uh, work people back. So you take what they're doing now, which is, you know, injecting dangerous drugs in dangerous places and give them some way other alternative to that and then you can maybe work up a ladder if that's their trajectory for their addiction but um this idea that uh our first uh our first approach should be uh putting locking people in a room and telling them to stop using drugs is yeah. uh you know it's just illogical <laughs> unrealistic are, are there other services associated with insight so beyond this you know the availability of, of clean clean needles and um yeah, you know, um, it's evolved, and there's. I've been. I think we're in the, in BC. We have a natural experiment now because these other supervised sites have been allowed to create some of their own rules, and uh, they've developed in response to what the community needs. And Insight now is looked upon as too medicalized. So there's uh, doctors there, there's nurses there, and um, and you know, for a lot of people, that's fine. But just the uh, idea that people can go and use drugs in a safe way without feeling any pressure that somebody's going to be asking them, you know, can you please get on methadone and stop using these drugs? I mean, um, and the whole medicalization of it, and and that brings in different rules, and uh, people now can get banned for their behavior and things. And across the road, I'm I'm working with one that's a much low, lower barrier place uh, with no services, really. Um, there's people there who are trained with uh, naloxone to uh, to respond to overdoses, mm -hmm. and that site is way more popular. So there's much more of a really? so people um, have kind of uh, voted with their feet as far as where they feel most comfortable. And yeah. for most people, on any given day, uh, they appreciate the opportunity to go go inside and uh, and maybe talk to somebody if they want to. But um, even for that. even for insight, um, there's. Uh, you know, um, no, uh, there, there's an expectation that uh, people, oh, sorry about that. You can, uh, we can cut that out. Rid of that, I guess. Yeah, don't I worry about it. I can edit that for you. Don't worry. Uh, sorry about that. Um, so, um, yeah, so the pe people vote with, with their feet. They, uh, 
um, like lower barrier things and without any strings attached. So, um, and even at Insight, most people, if you, you know, just being around there and observing, most people come in with their head down, they sign in, they go to their desk, they do their thing and they get out. And, uh, and that's what, what the first step for most people is. So, uh, uh, your question about, I think as we pile on more services that we think are doing, you know, are, are useful for people and they deserve those services, uh, we have to be careful that we don't overshoot and over-medicalize it because it, then it becomes a barrier for people uh, uh, attending. Interesting. And, you know, to, to what end with the machines as well? Are those being placed in, in, in locations where they can get access to more services? Or do you think they're going to be looking for that same, that same model of just let me get in and get out? Well, you know, there's, there's two, there's, you know, several components to this idea of putting the drugs in a machine. One is just the whole concept of what a safe supply should be. And uh, again, we've had uh, some experience in Vancouver. We have a, a clinic called Crosstown, which uh, gives heroin uh, injections and hydromorphone injections to about 150 people. And that's been going on for almost a decade. Wow. Um, it was a extension of a, a two um, clinical trials that were conducted in uh, Vancouver, one called Naomi, which was a heroin trial, and one called Salome, which also used hydromorphone injections. And um, just for ethical reasons, people who are doing so well on these programs, um, they've been allowed to continue, uh, mostly with the original people that were in it. And they're just now expanding a little bit. But um, so we knew that a safe supply was uh, very useful for people, obviously. So um, the idea of using a machine was just, a, to me, a scalable model that you could uh, do this um, at a you know pretty cost-effective way. Um, but the technology itself, um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I'm just learning myself. We've, we've had it up and running for about two and a half months. There's just 15 people using it right now. So um, every day we, we, we learn new things. But um, I spend a lot of time there. I talk to, the, talk to people and the, consistently the most important thing people say about it is the autonomy. They can come in when they want get it takes about 10 seconds they get their their drugs and they leave and uh and that and there's no expectation that they use their drugs at that time so people can have some um, flexibility of when they actually use them so they're they they can't use on site they take them out the door and uh um, it's fascinating when I first introduce people to them. One of the questions is always, well, now what, you know, I say, well, yeah. just take the drugs. They're, they're safe. And, uh, and you to go home and use them and, yeah. um, no strings attached, right? No strings attached. Just, yeah. I want you to use them. And, uh, the idea that, uh, people can get on a much more, uh, a regulated, uh, you know, they get up in the morning feeling drug sick and they, instead of going to the alley or actually most people's day is uh, doing something to get money, which often is uh, a little bit risky for them and often involves criminal activity. And, uh, you know, just why would we ask people to do that? It's, it's, right. it's insane, really. Here's the, here's the drugs. And then you can get, you know, you can get your life a little bit more organized and uh, people really appreciate it. And in a very short time, uh, I would say half the people are, have been transformed. It's transformative and sure. the other half are kind of catching up and they're doing better, but you know, but uh, there's people that, you know, in, in two months have picked up part-time jobs and they wow. all are not doing the same amount of crime. 
Um, they're certainly not using the street drugs that they were. I mean, it's not magic. There's a, I, I test people's urine and uh, they, you know, most of them still have fentanyl in their urine. I mean, it's still, you know, they haven't totally eliminated their, their street involvement or street drugs, but it's way down. And right. uh, so, um, you know, it's a, to me, it's just at this point in time when it's so dangerous to buy these drugs and use them, um, we have to offer some, we have to offer people an alternative rather than abstinence. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I feel like there's a, um, you know, down here, you, you were talking about how the, the site that is over medicalized, right? You know, there's, there's access to all these services that, you know, that's the goal. I think the goal is to make sure that the folks who are accessing those services have access to additional services, uh, yeah. because if they're not, if they're not talking about it, then they're not, they, they don't have enough information to make that decision when the time is right. And, you know, down here, uh, we're definitely trying to mix the two with all of our clinics, you know, via Suboxone, Methadone and stuff like that, that, you know, they're, they're coming in, what, you know, for Suboxone, it's like every two weeks to get their prescription for Methadone, it's every morning, uh, and they have to meet with counselors and case managers. So they're kind of locked into it. They don't have a choice. And uh, I find it interesting that when presented with the choice, as you said, they voted with their feet and they were just like, I'm not really interested in talking about it. And the majority just want to you know, just let me do my thing. I'll do it in a safe way, but just let me do my thing. And um, it's just interesting. I, I, I don't. We're really uncomfortable with that, right? And that, you know, the medical I am. community and I, the, yeah. everybody's very uncomfortable with this idea that people um, shouldn't be expected to uh, link to services. Um, right. They will, though. So people, you know, if people can get themselves a bit more stable, um, then they have the opportunity to think about that and make, make those, uh, initiate those connections themselves. I've, certainly, they should be available. Um, you know, I've prescribed more than enough methadone in my life. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, anti, anti-methadone or, or suboxone. Um, but the idea is that... Um, Basically, the way we've constructed our methadone programs, at least in Canada, they're they're part of an abstinence-based kind of mentality. These are we're telling people don't we don't want using these drugs. Um, use this drug. Come every day. Line up at a pharmacy. Get your drugs, and your we'll do urine tests. And you're you know you were we're kind of ensnaring people in in something that they may not have signed up for, and uh, so. I'm all, when people are ready to do that, I'm, you know, clearly there's um, thousands of people who have benefited greatly from these programs. But my experience is the people who do well on them um, have gone through a lot of things before they do well on them. And Mm -hmm. uh, we have to, we can't just abandon people who are not ready to sign up for that and just say, well, you know, come back when you're ready. And, um, you know, four or five years ago, um, in my clinical work, that would be likely they come back in six months and try again. And now they don't come back in six months because they're dead. Mm. <laughs> and so letting somebody, you know, people not, you know, adhering to your methadone program and uh, falling off. If, and, and then we just sit there and wait for them maybe to come back. And, uh, you know, in British Columbia, there's 5,000 people in the last three years who haven't come back and they won't come back. So mm-hmm. I just find now it's a, uh, we have to offer people other alternatives than just saying, stick to my 
program or else we can't really do much for you. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're telling people just don't use drugs. Like, you know, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't work. I remember yeah. that campaign. That didn't, that didn't work. work. Yeah. No. That and I mean, work. there, there are some people that are just not going to recover in the way we want them to recover. The, and yeah. I say we, I mean like the general, you know, the general public, our idea of recovery, abstinence or whatever that idea is, some people will not get there, but they'll still be alive. Still be alive. I mean, my, you know, I've been at this community. There, there's people that I, I came to Vancouver in 1999 to start working in a clinic there. And uh, there's people today who are still, I still see, like they're still, and two or three of them are in my program right now. And they're, you know, I, I don't know what their trajectory in life is, how, you know, they, it looks, looks like a tough life they've led and with their drug use, but uh, they're still alive and, uh, and, and, you know, then doing yeah. things. And I, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's uh, their, their life and their life trajectory. And I think as a society, we, you know, we've, we've created such a horrible situation for people um, by our pol drug policies. And uh, I've argued that it has very little to do with the drugs. Like the right. people can use heroin for 20 years and be fine. Um, but they're not fine because they've been arrested and beat up and they've spent all their money on ex extortionary drug prices. <laughs> and, and, so, they're not, and they're not really using heroin. They're using all kinds of synthetics that they don't even know that they're using. Yeah. Heroin. yeah. Yep. So it's a, it's a horrible life, but it's, it's because our drug policies have created a horrible life for people. And, uh, you know, uh, and the only way, you know, I've also argued that people will stop or reduce their drug use when they find something better to do than drugs. And uh, for many people that getting drugs and getting high is about all they got going for them right now. And uh, we need to find something else to, to replace that for people well, or they need to find something else themselves to replace that. Isn't that the, uh, that's the rat park experiment. Um, sure. Yeah. You know, where the, the original rat park was just, uh, well, the original rat experiment was just a one rat in a cage with a bottle of uh, cocaine water and regular water. And once it identified the cocaine water, it just did that until it died. There was nothing else to do. And so they, you know, this was an experiment from back in the 70s. And then they redid the experiment and came up with Rat Park, which is where they created this rat utopia. And they took rats who had been isolated using that cocaine water and put them in a larger park with more rats and more social activities and things to do. And they said a large majority of them just stopped doing the cocaine water. There were other things to do. And so they just engaged other things. Rats don't want to be cocaine addicts. <laughs> um, well, the, you know, the 15 people that I've enrolled in the program, um, I asked them what they want out of the program. And everyone says to reduce or stop their drug use. Like, and so right. It's it's that you know people understand that what they're doing and the and the cycle that they're in at the current time is not sustainable, not enjoyable. Like it's really a a grind for people, um, and so they'd like nothing more than to get out of that. But um, the what we offer them often has so many strings attached. Um, the system is so stigmatizing too. Even you know um, we we've worked really hard at you know, in hospitals and clinics to really try and reduce the stigma because people walk through and they, they're identified right away as drug seekers and drug use. Who needs that kind of humiliation, basically? Right. And our, our, even our methadone programs are really based on humiliation. You know, we take people who are trying to stop or reduce their drug use and tell them to line up with all these other people doing the same thing every morning. I mean, it's mm. a it's humiliating and stigmatizing. And so we, we, 
we've created, um, you know, what we think is helpful situations for people that we're kind of doing them a favor, but we've, um, you know, these programs have been um, designed to uh, meet doctors in the medical system where we're at, not people where they're at. And um, yeah, I think that's true. How are those 15 people chosen to participate in the study? Yeah, well, it, I mean, it's it's early days. I there was quite a lot of uh, concerns or skepticism about the technology as it works. So it's a biometric um, machine. So it's about an eight hundred pound square box, more like an ATM mm -hmm. uh, that that um, is filled with individual prescriptions. And people uh, put their hand up to the machine. It reads the vein pattern in their palm and um, identifies them through biometrics. And they can get their pills dispensed in, in about 10 seconds and we so but there was a lot of concern that you know people wouldn't like that or they wouldn't use biometrics or, or the machine would malfunction so i handpicked five people just to demonstrate that it could work the technology and you know i'm open to learning too it's a brand new idea and a brand new thing so i was very interested in how people use the machine and how consistent they use it if they had mm. trouble with biometrics all those things that it was a learning process I've got up to 15, I would say the last 10 have just been compassionate access. So uh, people come to me and uh, say, you know, this is, I have to have this, you know, I'd, um, I've just overdosed. And so, um, you know, there's a, if I put a sign up tomorrow that, you know, who anybody, you know, please sign up, there'd be lineups around the block for sure. Um, but I've been very uh, careful and not uh, um, allowing that many people in until I kind of prove the concept. And yeah. so, uh, and so, as I say, the last 10 people have really all been compassionate. Like, you know, I, I just feel that I, some of them I know when they come to me, you know, begging me to be on the program because uh, they're so scared of buying fentanyl. So we've uh, slowly increased the numbers. Hmm. Any thoughts in dispensing Suboxone or methadone like this? Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the technology itself, I think, has a lot of applications. Um, and I picked the hardest one. <laughs> but yeah. uh, uh, obviously, methadone and Suboxone should be put on these machines. People don't want to go to a pharmacy every day and don't want all those rules, and they want the convenience of getting it when they want and things. So mm -hmm. I think they have a lot of potential. I've also been involved in, um, my, through my career, getting people HIV medications, Hep C medications, and the biggest issue with this is uh, is adherence and making sure people are taking their pills. And again, this uh, kind of machine could uh, really help a lot of people uh, get oh. through their their treatment yeah. yeah they would have to come and take everything all at the same time i would imagine yeah and i have yeah. real time i have a dashboard i have an app i know exactly every pill that's coming out of that machine in real time i know who got you know i can tell you who got their last pill you know some somebody got one five minutes ago kind of thing um so it's very uh it's very regulated in some ways the other beauty of it i can um I can program the machine to give out as much um, and at what time I want. So most everybody starts off having to come four times a day to get one dose at a time. But if things are going well, we can uh, program the machine to get two doses at a time, twice a day. And then, uh, you know, uh, that's where I've got to for some people now, but no reason people couldn't come every couple of days and get, get their doses. Right. Hmm. That'd be an interesting way to eliminate the, the cattle line, if you will, of the methadone clinics and the, yeah, you know, overcrowded doctor's offices for Suboxone and, you know, or mixing, well, you know, down here we got the doctor's offices where it's just a, you know, regular family physician might be giving out the medication and then they're, they're feeling, you know, they've got that person in the corner that feels all guilty and shameful, like everybody knows right. what they're doing. 
when they could be just going directly to the source. Or that they can't get there every day, you know? Yeah. Which mm -hmm. is wait, and these machines could operate twenty four seven, so right. people have their you know uh, um, kind in of a variety of locations, right? In so a variety of so, locations, yeah. it could be all. Right now, it's a prescription model, so every pill packet that goes in there is assigned to a certain individual. So e there's forty eight lanes in the machine, so that um, you know a machine could take on forty eight clients. But there's no reason that they uh, couldn't. We couldn't put a bunch of machines, and people could qualify to be in all the machines, and we could. Um, still regulate it so people may still only be able to access the machine four times a day but uh, they could do it at different locations and we could still uh, keep track there's a real problem with people being stuck to their pharmacy in canada so basically you can't go anywhere so mm -hmm. if you wanted to visit a friend somewhere you'd be stuck for the weekend so uh, this kind of technology would allow people to, to access their medications in other locations we hope that you're enjoying this episode of collateral damage now please take a moment to recognize our sponsors. I hit rock bottom so hard that I bounced twice. My disease had me battered, beaten, and broken. I used to live and live to use. Nothing mattered to me. And it wasn't until I entered a detox that I had, you know, trained clinical professionals that were able to help combat my disease of addiction. At Sunrise, we understand the courage it takes to look in the mirror and go, I just can't do this anymore. Give Sunrise a call. If you're even thinking about it, your recovery has already started. We'd like to thank Sunrise Detox for sponsoring this episode of Collateral Damage. And now back to our episode. Now you 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 have uh, the universal healthcare up there, right? So this this is not individually paid for through an individual's insurance, right? This is all public health money. Well, you know, I don't have you know to be honest, I I don't have a a big. Uh, swell of support from the Ministry of Health. And so cost is a is an issue. Uh, you know, uh, governments are, you know, risk averse by definition. So this is a scary thing for, for ministries of health and uh, health authorities and things. So uh, um, I've kind of, you know, I kind of left my, my official job and uh, just did this on my own um, just to prove the concept about a year ago, I decided that the only way to even get one machine on the ground was to uh, just do it myself. I, I think, and I, you know, I had a hundred conversations with, you know, um, governing bodies and colleges and all this. And so, and they, they weren't going to be flexible in allowing this to happen. But so basically the narrative of this machine is I'm writing a, a legal prescription for somebody, dilated pills or hydromorphone, they go to a regular pharmacy, the pharmacy packages them up and dispenses them just like normal. And then after they leave the pharmacy, there's really no regulation about what people do with their medications. So the people in, in this program have uh, um, consented or, or elected to have their pills stored in this machine. So I gotcha. um, these are their medications. It's not me as a doctor filling up this machine with hydromorphone and handing it out to people. These are their medications and they're putting them in a safe lock box. And uh, who could think that's a bad idea? People, right. especially when they're marginally housed, do, do you want to put, you know, a week of hydromorphone in a shopping cart? And, and you know, so the, to me, this is just a very uh, secure way for people to uh, uh, keep their drugs safe. And, gotcha. uh, um, and I'm not really challenging any of the current regulations as far as prescribing. So right. it's um, so right now the um, people who are on social assistance have a medical have a medication um, 
program that it's, it's subsidized, so it's free to them. Um, if this, you know, if I got, you know, a thousand people on this program and brought in a whole bunch of other machines, uh, we'd probably have to talk to the government about uh, how we're going to, uh, you know, if they're willing to actually subsidize these medications. But a dilated pill in Canada is 35 cents. So a full oh, wow. dose for people is about $6 a day. So it's, it's, not a, it's not a huge expense, especially when you consider the alternative, which is... Uh, you know, hospitalization to ambulance calls, crime, like there's a ton of, a ton of uh, expenses for doing nothing. So uh, in the whole scheme of thing, this is a really uh, cost effective thing to, uh, to do. Yeah. Uh, I like that. I mean, I was just wondering, cause I was thinking about how that translates down here. Like if it was ever to pick up speed and come down here, you know, I, I would find it hard to believe that the state would pick up the tab or that the federal government would pick up the tab, I think it would be, or the privatized insurance companies. I think somebody would want to make money off of it um, because that's what we do down here. (laughs) Well, you could, you know, I, you know, one model, which I wouldn't necessarily support is that people could purchase these drugs. So the, the machine could just be, you know, we'd still regulate it, but uh, instead of paying $15 for a flap of unknown powder in the back alley, uh, people could pay three bucks and get some dilated pills. So, and right. I think a lot of people would elect to do that. So, or or even you know those those boxes being uh, you know like a pharmacy, you know a, a a an unstaffed pharmacy, you know with certain available medications where prescriptions could be filled, uh, stored and housed without any interaction. You know with the yeah. the patient bringing the medication and saying I'm willing to store it here just it's filled, it's stored, I can come back and get it at certain doses. I would, I would imagine that would be a useful tool. Interesting. Yeah. Well, the people, you know, when you get down to it, um, the difference between hydromorphone, giving out people, giving out hydromorphone and, you know, uh, you should understand that most people are grinding these up and cooking them and injecting them. So the the pills are still injected for the most part, which has Mm -hmm. happened, you know, which happens commonly. Um, But the, um, the idea that we would support methadone and suboxone because that takes away people's, you know, um, cravings and uh, controls their uh, withdrawal symptoms. Um, basically, that's what hydromorphone does too. Only it allows people to get high. And I think huh. there's a real concern that we would do nothing to allow people to uh, get any kind of pleasure from the, the drugs. But to me, hydromorphone is just the same as methadone, except people can get high. <laughs> so it's uh it, it's to me, if you're willing to subsidize methadone then why wouldn't you subsidize hydromorphone for people because it, yeah. it, but we i think as a society um, and we have a lot of trouble with that you know yeah. <laughs> like yeah. we really love suboxone because it gives people no uh no enjoyment it just uh strictly treats their uh, uh their withdrawal symptoms only and, if you uh, take it as prescribed because yeah. uh, i've used it I'm a, I'm a person in recovery i can tell you i've used it and i've gotten high on both suboxone yeah. and methadone you know okay and yeah. it's just about but it's tougher yeah <laughs> like it's, 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 tough. it's all about how you manage your doses i mean take yeah. as prescribed the goal is for you to not feel anything good Right. Uh, but being the addict that I was, I always made my own goals. So, yeah, no, yeah. I'm sure. But um, yeah, methadone's a, a dip, more difficult high than hydromorphone, I think. So uh, most yeah. people admit that. So, uh, but, we're, but we are really concerned that uh, anybody, and then, you know, in, at the end of the day, why people are taking these drugs in the first place um, is, to, uh, is to get high and uh, self-medicate. And uh, 
why would they, why would we think not giving them that possibility be a good thing? Like that's mm. why people, you know, we're, we're, we're not really, um, you know, addressing why people are using the drugs in the first place. And so, um, right. and I, but I agree, you know, I've seen, you know, as you'd be more of an expert than I am, Michael, but you know, as far as people's trajectory, I mean, people come to different points in their lives and they want different things and need different things. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, I think we just have to open up a spectrum of opportunities for people. And uh, I, I think a lot of people on a hydromorphone program would end up on a methadone program at some point, but um, you know, it, it, I'm not, I can't predict when that would happen for them. And I don't think by giving them hydromorphone really influences how, um, how that happens. I think it's it, it counter, it's, I think people feel that this is enabling, if you're giving people the drugs that they want, why would they want to change? But it's just the opposite. You you give them some stability, and then they can think about why they might want to change. So uh, mm -hmm. uh, I I just I I just think it's counterintuitive to to most people. But it, this is not enabling. This is really allowing people some stability, and then they can make other decisions that you know that that maybe we think is more beneficial. But I don't think it it's enabling at all to take some woman who's selling sex in the back alleys. And giving her the drug so she doesn't have to sell sex is a is a huge, you know, that's huge for somebody. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I think I yeah. think that you know, you, there's that fear that it's enabling this, and I'm sure that you've heard this before. There is this idea that if you make it this easy, people that don't have an addiction will want to, you know, it will make it more appealing for them to try it and all this. People say stuff like that, but um, I think if you ask any mother, and I've gone through this with my daughter, and I thank God that she's still with me, but. Um, if you ask any mother who's lost a child, whether they would prefer this or they would prefer that, you know, their child to be using street drugs and pass away. I, I don't think yeah. there's much, of, there's not much of a, a debate there anymore. So. No, no, I, I agree. Yeah. A lot of, oh, I'm really sorry. I will throw my phone out, but it's now somehow attached to my computer. So oh, it's off my phone, but it, everybody's like, the power so, of connected technology. Yeah, exactly. I love it. Can't escape. So I'm, <laughs> I'm curious, what's the route in in Vancouver? If you say, okay, I'm going to go on, I'm going to go on the machine. I'm going to get the the um, you know, a, a daily dose or whatever. And I, but I really would like to get off of everything. What happens in Vancouver if somebody's if that's what they want? Well, there's a lot, you know. Again, I'm working in a very concentrated area. There is tons of services, clinics, methadones. About so there is everybody on this program has failed multiple times in yeah. what we're offering. So there's if somebody came to me tomorrow and said, "Look, I'd really like to get on a methadone program," it, they could get it the same day. There, there's it, really oh, it's, no. It's available there. Like like the, I'm just wondering, well. like what if somebody did get that clarity, right? They now they're not yeah. you know running around trying to find ways to buy drugs and who to buy drugs from, dealing with all this dangerous stuff, and they realize that you know what I don't I want my my life before this back, yeah. and they don't want to be on anything. Are there yeah. are there is there a way to do that easily in Vancouver? Easily. I mean, I, you know, it's, uh, again, the downtown east side maybe uh, it doesn't represent the whole province. Um, but I think on the whole, especially in the last four years, there's been a real emphasis on uh, getting more opportunities for people to get on substitution therapy, uh, Suboxone and, and Methadone. So there, you know, I've lost, I don't know the last statistics, but I somewhere around 20,000 people in the province of 
you know, uh, 4 million are on uh, methadone. Um, uh -huh. so it's a big, big program. There's a lot of people on methadone. There's a lot of physicians prescribing, a lot of pharmacies giving it out. So it, there is no, uh, uh, no real barriers to that. Um, but the rules, you know, so, I, so anybody, it, that would be great. If I think. Well, what if, about if, a complete detox and then treatment? Do you have that available there? I'm just curious as to what's available in Vancouver. Yeah, like everywhere, it's uh, could be better, but uh, mm -hmm. there's a lot of opportunities for uh, for short-term detox. But in the, this, um, you know, we're really pushing back on these ideas that it's a good idea for you to go for two weeks detox. I mean, the uh, chance of you coming out of there not using drugs is so low, and that once you're detoxed, your chance of overdosing is so high. So the the, some of the biggest risks are people coming out of these short-term detox and they overdose and people coming out of prisons, the prison system, obviously. So mm -hmm. it's a, it's a huge problem. So people, you know, if they, they want to pursue a detox and a recovery program, there's lots of opportunities for people to do that. But um, with the fentanyls that's out on the street now, for a lot of people, that's hugely precarious unless they've really got a, a, a long-term plan. But um People who are just just pushed into, you know, why don't you just get into this bed for seven days and we'll uh, detox you and uh, give you some methadone or whatever we want to do with you. Um, that I'm really concerned that a lot of these programs aren't aren't looking far enough ahead yeah. and dumping people back on the street who have basically lost their tolerance and they take the smallest amount of fentanyl and they go down. And, right. uh, it's a it's a real precarious situation now for people to. Uh, to, to pursue short-term detox for opioids. What about Vivitrol? Is there much use of Vivitrol there? No, no, I personally don't think it's a good idea, but um, no, there's, there's really not much. I don't, I don't know anybody on, on it. Really? Oh. Yeah. That's interesting because it's being used more down here, I guess. Um, yeah, hmm. but it's, it's yeah, I think. Yeah, I guess if you know whatever works, you know, if there, there's probably people you get on the show who said that's the best thing that ever happened to them, and they're doing yeah. great. And right. I'm, you know, we need to, you know, I, I, I'm not um, dissing any. No, any, no, it's just interesting know, to know what goes on yeah. in another place. You know, what yeah. goes what's going on there. Even as far as what about, I mean, housing. So somebody's on methadone, or they're on Suboxone, or they're on, they're coming in for the, um, for their um, medication, and. Um, is there availability of housing? Do you have what kind of services? That's kind of what I meant before when I said services. Like if somebody yeah. needs food and they need a roof over their head and they need access to employment, are there services like that available? Lots of services. Is there enough? Not near. No, there's never going to be enough. Fall yeah. through the cracks. We have, you sure. know, there's been, you know, Vancouver is notorious for a housing price. It's very difficult right. for anybody to live here now. So it's, uh, it's, it's been a real... Uh, a real problem. And uh, a lot of people who are using drugs end up on the short end of, of housing and, uh, and services and stuff. But, you know, there's ample, you know, people aren't starving. There's, there's tons of food programs and things, but it's, it's still very sad. I mean, we don't, you know, we, the welfare um, system that we have in Canada, um, it's just so inadequate. So, you know, we give people $700 a month or something and they expect them to survive somehow. So, I mean, it's very, uh, yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. Um, but there's a, it is, it's not that nobody's thought about it and there's, right. um, 
there's modular housing that's gone up and there's things, but there, there's, you know, I believe housing is so critical to people to stabilize them, but there's a, yeah. a natural experiment that happened uh, just outside of Vancouver where there was a notorious uh, street um, and they, there's about 400 people that were living in tents along the street. And I, there's a clinic right there that I worked in. I went once a month to do some uh, HIV work there. And uh, they, um, they built modular housing, uh, three big modular housing units. They went up like in six months. Um, people got were selected and about, you know, probably three quarters of the people living in tents on that street got a, got a, a room with their own bathroom. Uh, there was uh, food services on site. Um, and it was, it was amazing. You know, it was, they were really, really, uh, an important intervention. But if you yeah. go there at nine o'clock in the morning, the place empties out because people are still using drugs. Right. It didn't, you know, uh, um, and they're still on the street and now it's even harder because people, the government has decided, well, we've given people housing. So we have zero tolerance for people loitering and all this. So people now are chased to the you know, even more dangerous places. So um, we have to still, you know, that the housing won't solve everything for people. Um, right. It's really critical. Um, but again, we need, you know, to take care of the addiction and what, right. You know, so they're what, addressing the symptom, but not the cause. Yeah. Yeah. So we still take traumatized people and uh, give them a house. It's great. Um, but uh, they need other things to right. make it work. So, um, Absolutely. Yeah. so I mean, I, but, um, you know, I think in a, the downtown east side has been such a focus for the city of Vancouver. So we have this, you know, beautiful modern city, and then we have five square blocks of human misery all at one place. And uh, for people who have toured through there, I've given a hundred tours of the downtown east side, and people are amazed. You cross one street, and all of a sudden, you appear to be in a totally different world. Mm. Um, and there's been a lot of money poured into that and, and housing and supports and outreach. And so there's been a real effort to do that. But um, it's, you know, it's, it's just fallen short and we still have a lot of people living in tents. With all the availability of, um, of um, all this harm reduction, do you see any decrease in um, the, the new cases of AIDS? HIV. Oh yeah, there's hardly any HIV spread right now. I I'm mean, I'm seeing I, a lot of it here. New cases here. Yeah, Personally. needles are everywhere. Um, the people, as far as access to them, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting as far as this enabling argument. So you know, 20 years ago, giving people needles would be like you're just enabling people to use drugs would be the biggest argument, and yeah. maybe that still exists in some place in the United States, but. Uh, now we just if people come for needles we ask them can you take more and give them to your friends basically that's awesome every clinic every so there's really no reason people would need to reuse or share a needle in uh, in vancouver and most people are fairly educated about that that they mm -hmm. would never think to do that and there's people walk around with boxes and needles so it's uh so transmission of uh, infectious diseases are are much lower. Hep C, you know, it's so easy to transmit hepatitis yeah. C, but there's still new infections and mostly reinfections because we've treated quite a few people. But um, mm. HIV, um, at one point in the 90s, there were 35% of the people living in that community were HIV positive. Um, you know, now, you know, 25 years later, most of those people have passed away. Um, but there's still a lot of people on antiretroviral treatment in the, in the community. Um, and the spread is... Uh, yeah, there's very few new infections happening. That's good to hear. So we're going to have to wrap up, and I really appreciate you coming on. But I'm just wondering if there was one thing that you could change, if you could, if there was 
that you could look at overall that you think would make the biggest impact? What would that be? Well, you know, people think of this as a, you know, the, the overdose epidemic has really pulled the curtain back on exactly, you know, how little we're doing for people. And so the risk of overdosing today in British Columbia is about the same as it was four years ago. The chance of dying might be less because we have supervised injection sites and a lot of naloxone on the street. But um, the number of people overdosing hasn't changed that much. The risk hasn't changed that much. And so my progression in thinking about harm reduction and addiction is our, our only ethical response now is, uh, is decriminalization of drug use and uh, um, giving people access to a safer supply of drugs. And this is uh, now radical, you know, this is a radical idea and crazy idea, but if people look back and what we're doing now is, is crazy. Like we take people that are, you know, traumatized in the worst shape of anybody in our community and we decided to criminalize them and just punish them more and more. It's like, and just re-traumatizing people all over again and then expecting them to like somehow recover. And uh, mm. so I'm really, you know, we really need to totally change the way we approach this. It's more than just a health, it's not good enough just to say, well, it's a health issue because we haven't really changed our, our policies. It's still illegal and we still have a heavy-handed criminal justice system. We fill our jails up with people who are using drugs and drive them to the periphery and uh, and now they're dying. It's like uh, I just find it unethical and we really need to uh, totally rethink what we're doing to people who are using drugs and uh, just to start meet them where they're at means give them access to the drugs they're using right now in a safe way and then they can you know work their way up some kind of trajectory or ladder but uh, just closing the door on any possibility that they you know other than abstinence for the most part is uh is getting us nowhere and we're just you know losing literally hundreds of thousands of people that um, do not need to be die do not need to die and do not need to be treated this way i love it yeah. where there's breath there's hope right yep well, thank you so much. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. See you.